So we're, we're going through the book of Acts and uh, looking at uh, how the church began in the early missionary uh, efforts. So if you're willing and able, why don't you stand? We're going to read from Acts chapter 17. First, 15, first 14 verses there. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollina, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus, who I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, taking up some wicked men of rabble. They formed a mob and set the city into an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring, out the, bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar saying there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken some money as security from Jason and the rest, they let him go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with all eagerness and examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, not a few Greek women, and not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of the God was being proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off by the way of the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. The grass withers and the flower fades, but not the word of God. No, the word of God stands forever. You may be seated. Riots. You know, there's been uh, thousands of riots in American history. You know, and riots really from almost every kind of stripe. There's been labor riots. There's been race riots. There's been employment riots. I mean, just riots of every kind. Um, small ones, big ones, everywhere. Let me ask you a question. How do you feel about disco music? Yeah, disco music. In 1979, in the summer, the Chicago White Sox were playing the Detroit Tigers at Kaminsky Park. And the theme of the night was Disco Demolition Night. So you could get into the game if you brought a disco record to destroy for 98 cents. And so a disc jockey had planned ahead of time, and before the game started, they had a huge crate of disco records, and they just blew it up on the field. 
Well, when they did that, all hell broke loose, and people just stormed the field, throwing their disco records, ripping up the sod, and literally setting things on fire. They had to cancel the game because of the riot. I just wanted my 98 cents back. (laughs) You know, riots have happened a lot. In 1967, the Detroit riots were considered the most violent and destructive in U.S. history. There was the Minneapolis riots, the Ferguson riots. In 1992 was the L.A. riots. And that kind of rocked my world uh, personally. But that's a story for another time. So what's the purpose of a riot? Riots happen because there is simmering frustration over injustice, or people want to stop something. They want change. Last week in uh, Sri Lanka, rioters stormed the president's house, and uh, they just kind of moved in and made themselves welcome. They sat on the couches, they watered the flowers, they cooked in the kitchen, they, uh, they ran on the treadmills in the exercise room. And then they had this huge pool party. You can watch it online. There's all swimming. All these people swimming at the president's house. And then they all got tired of that. And then they burned the house down, demanding that the president resign. So what if a riot came to your house? What if a riot came to your life? In Acts 17, Paul and Silas are preaching the gospel, and it causes a riot. An uproar and division. It also causes a riot of followers in this new way. I mean, it's an all-out gospel riot. You see, the gospel is a power that always causes a riot in us and around us. It's always going to be transforming everything it touches. Now, religion, not so much. Because religion is, is being dressed properly It is believing the right things and outwardly always behaving well and always kind of sneering at other people. That's religion. But the gospel is different, like a riot changing us. In fact, if there is no transformation, it could be that you are interfacing with religion and not the gospel at all. Because the gospel is like a jalapeno pepper. When you bite into it, something happens. So, why are you here? You want to start a riot? Take your sermon outline. Let's do this. First, the riot of Scripture. Paul goes into the synagogue, and it says that he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, revealing the Christ. And this set off a riot of conversion but also a counter-riot from the Jews who formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. Then there's this intentional comparison with Berea and Thessalonica. It says that the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica, referring to their eagerness to know the Scriptures. Now, it's not that they were somehow better than those in Thessalonica, But their eagerness and their earnestness to examine the Scriptures daily produced more fruit in their community. In Thessalonica, it says some, 
In Berea, it says many. But in both towns, the scriptures being taught brought a riot. Now, the verbs of action towards the scripture in these pa- in this passage is this. It says the action verbs are reasoned, explained, persuaded, proved, received, opened, examined. And all of these action verbs communicate an earnestness and an eagerness and a, and a joy, anticipation, and longing. So let me, let me just ask you something here. What are your action verbs in regards to the Scriptures? I mean, could it be that our lives are dull and our worship is tired because we do not go to the Scriptures like the Bereans for daily nourishment? What is, uh, what is your most prized possession? Is it your house? Is it your cars? Is it your boat? No. It's the Word of God that is your most prized possession. I tell you what, look in, look in your uh, worship uh, pamphlet. There's a quote there I want to read. It's a little bit long. I'd like you to follow along. It's in, the, it's in the reflection part here right after the outline. The second quote starts off, The Bible Contains. Why don't you follow along with me as I read this? The Bible contains the mind of God, the state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, practice it to be holy. It contains light to direct you, food to support you, and comfort to cheer you. It is the traveler's map, the pilgrim's staff, the pilot's compass, the soldier's sword, and the Christian's charter. Here, paradise is restored, heaven is opened, and the gates of hell disclosed. Christ is its grand subject and its good design, and the glory of God its end. It should fill your memory, rule your heart, guide your feet. Read it slowly, frequently, prayerfully. It is a mind of wealth, a paradise of glory, a river of pleasure. It is given to you in life. It will be opened at the judgment and be remembered forevermore. There is a sacred preciousness to the Word of God. It's not there to give you a little boost. It is there to shape you and form you and make you wise and open you up to the knowledge of everything, particularly the knowledge of your Creator. You know, we enter this world fallen and broken. We don't know how to have a meaningful life. We don't have the wisdom to uh, know how to uh, be happy and have joy. Um, We don't understand ourselves correctly. You know, we tend to think that life is about making a name for ourselves, about as much success that we can have. But the Bible dismantles this and says that you are made for God's glory and to make His name great. 
You know, we tend to think that, that God accepts us if we're good and that the name of the game is to show everyone around you that you're actually a good and decent person. But the Bible dismantles this and says you don't have what it takes. It's all of His grace, and you need it desperately. You know, we tend to think that we're not worth much or that our lives are meaningless. But the Bible dismantles this and says you are made in God's image, that you matter, you have dignity, and one day in eternity you will rule the cosmos with God. You know, we tend to think that um, that what's really going to give us life is, is sex and food and sports and vacations. That that's what's going to satisfy. And the Bible dismantles this and says that His gifts will never satisfy your deepest soul thirst and that you were made for more. You know, the Bible is the only lasting and firm foundation of truth. Everything else in life will be blown away from you. Do you know that? Your parents and their counsel will go away when they die. Your friends will move to Florida and retire. <laughs> okay? And your pastor won't always be there for you. Everything will be taken away. The grass withers and the flower fades, but not the Word of God. The Word of God stands forever. You know, during my sabbatical, I, I read a book uh, by a guy who talked about being in ministry for 50 years. And he talked about things that he, that he would, he, you know, he, was, he, did, he would not change, but then he talked about things he would have changed for sure. And one of them was personal. He said, um, he said I watched way too much television. His television was like a drug to me. He said, I come home and just numb myself. And uh, I, I, when I read that, I thought, you know, I, that, that's guilty as charged. I watch way too much television. You know, we waste our lives on so many trivial things. You know, we're scrolling all the time on our smartphone, our, our iPad. We're shopping all the time. We're looking. We're scrolling on social media. Just, you know what a restless thumb is? It reveals a restless heart. And we're just looking for a hit. Scott Sauls is a, is a pastor, and he had a young man uh, in his church who was diagnosed with ALS. And uh, this disease was really hard on him and his family, and it was very uh, devastating and frustrating. And and, um, but this man would not let this disease define him. And uh, this is what uh, Scott Sauls writes. He says, John's attitude and lightness of being, especially considering the suffering that he was called to endure, made such an impression on me. I finally just had to ask him, John, how are you doing this? How are you suffering in this way with such admirable poise and calm? He said his answer was simple. He said, well, that's easy. I've been a Bible reader my whole life. I guess it finally sunk in. You know, it kind of reminds you of that old adage that if you see a Bible that is falling apart, 
it usually means that it's owned by someone whose life is not falling apart. You know, why do we have a Christian school? Running a school, school's a lot of work. Why do we do it? To disciple kids in the scriptures, to teach them the word of God, and to teach them that all truth is God's truth. We're utterly passionate about that mission. I want you to picture something, okay? Just, just picture this. Picture a counselor sitting down with a person whose life is unraveling. How many of those kind of sessions start off with something like this being said? I grew up without a father. I never had a dad who spoke into my life. I had an abusive father. My father never told me he was proud of me. When my life hit bottom, I could not pick up the phone and call my dad. How many times do you think something like that is said in a counseling session? Really, all of them. Because when your life is unraveling, you need to hear from your dad. You need to hear from your heavenly father. In the scriptures. Years ago, I, I was coming to church. I was parking out there and I was walking this way. And as I was coming up, I, I bumped into this older gentleman. Um, his name is Johnny Gregory. And Johnny got out of his car and uh, he had this funny look on his face. Kind of a, this nostalgic, kind of smiling look. And I, said, I said, Johnny, what's up with you? He said, oh, he goes, ah. Sometimes when I drive to church by myself, because Barbara's already here, I, I, I listen to these old cassette tapes of my dad. I said, your dad? He said, well, my dad's been gone a long time, of course, but you see, my dad and my uncle, they didn't write letters. They would talk on a cassette tape and record it and then mail it to each other. And see, he goes, they must have did that for a decade. And so I have all these cassette tapes of my dad talking to my uncle. He said they talk about farming and projects and, and family trips and fishing. And, and then he stopped and he goes, you know, it's just really great to hear my dad's voice. Read the Bible. Get one of those apps on your phone. Listen to the Bible when you go to work. Study the Bible with others. Come to church where we open the scriptures together. It's your greatest treasure. It will bring a riot of transformation and hope and purpose and comfort. Because it's the voice of your heavenly father. And who doesn't need to hear from their dad? Second, King Jesus, riot of King Jesus. So Paul is teaching the scriptures, and many folks here are converted, and some of the Jews oppose them, and they get jealous. And so they go out and get these thugs, these bullies from the marketplace. One commentator has called them louts and layabouts, you know. So they gather these thugs, and they start this riot, this mob, goes to the authorities and, and says, hey, Paul and Silas are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, 
this King Jesus. And the city authorities are disturbed by this. Now, why, why would the threat of another king, instead of Caesar, being taken so seriously? You see, the law of the land was that Caesar was king. Caesar was to be the sole authority and to be worshipped. And Rome's attitude towards the Jews was, hey, all right, you guys, can, you guys do your religious thing. We don't care, you know. But remember one thing, Caesar is king. He's king, nobody else. And in the history of the world, and certainly in the time of Caesar, kings and dictators always keep people under control, under their thumb, by two primary means, fear and money. Let's look at the first one, fear. So Rome has all the power, and Caesar, like most leaders in history, will use fear, threats of punishment, suffering, and death. And this mob has already begun to inflict suffering on Jason and the followers. But what if King Jesus removes this fear? Do you remember Jesus before Pilate? And Pilate is threatening Jesus and says to Jesus, Don't you know I have the power to crucify you or to let you go? (laughs) And Jesus says, You have no power over me except what has been given to you from heaven. So last week when Ray was preaching about Paul and Silas in Philippi, so they're out preaching and the authorities come and do what? They have them beaten. And they throw them in jail. And they're thinking, all right, now we scared them. That'll shut them up. No, what are they doing in the prison, in the jail? They're singing and they're praying. And God sends an earthquake. And the, and the jailer and all of his family is converted. doesn't stop them. King Jesus rules his people, giving them access to hope and joy in suffering and even the power to give thanks in suffering. Corey Tinboom and her sister Betsy were sent to a Nazi concentration camp during World War II because they were aiding the Jews. And the barracks that they were put in were terribly overcrowded and flea infested. But miraculously, they were able to smuggle, to sneak a Bible into the camp. And they had been reading in the scriptures to give thanks in everything. So Betsy decided that that meant that they should thank God for a flea-infested barracks. Now, Corey would have nothing of it. Corey said, I am not thanking God for these fleas. They are driving us nuts. And Betsy kept insisting, so finally Corey gave in and said, okay, I will tell God, thank you for the fleas. But a curious thing happened. The guards never came in their barracks, which the result was is that the women were not assaulted and that they were able to read the Bible and hold uh, little worship services and pray with everybody in the barracks. It led to countless women coming to faith in Christ. Later, 
they discovered the whole reason the guards would not come into the barracks was because of the fleas. They were left alone. They were safe in their barracks. God had sent an army of fleas to protect them and advance his kingdom. In Romans 8, Paul says to the Roman church, he says, okay, let's just line up all the bullies and the thugs. Everything that's a threat to to the church, to the people of God. And he says this, he says, who's going to separate us from the love of God? Let's name the bullies. Tribulation, famine, sword, danger, nakedness, poverty, life, death, rulers, demons, all of these bullies, none of them can separate us from the love of God. We are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if you're Caesar, what do you do if the riot of Jesus' followers have had fear removed because this Jesus has kicked the teeth out of your thugs and bullies? How do you stop that? Well, your evidence that Caesar could not. Second is money. So we see the authorities try to control the situation by charging a heavy fine on Jason and the, and the others. You know, the world is always trying to control people by their pocketbook. You know, you get their money. Get their money. That'll get their attention. Because everybody's controlled by money. Everybody is uh, concerned about their money. But what if there's another king who own, whose father owns the cattle on a thousand hills? And what if the followers of, these king, of this king pray like children for their daily bread? And what if the followers of this king, they gather in the church and they are generous with others, alleviating need? Acts chapter 2. You know, in 2 Corinthians, we read about the Macedonian church, that they were so generous, they were generous even though they were experiencing scarcity, even though they were in need. In fact, the early church was known for its generosity. They shared their food, their tables, their homes, their wealth liberally. The generosity was so profound that the Bible says that they were in favor with all people. So whether you were a Christian or not, you loved the church because they were so generous. They were helping out the poor all the time. Who does that? Kings, Jesus people. You know, there was a, a couple in a church, and they had, they had kind of fallen on some really hard times financially. And they went to their, uh, their small group leader, and they said, Hey, we, you know, quiet, confidentially, hey, just, would you just pray for us because this is... It's, it's, it's hard times for us. So not long after that, this couple and that leader were at a church gathering. And the leader took it upon himself and said, Hey, listen, we've got this anonymous couple in our church, and they're really hurting financially. So if you would like to help them, you know, give me some money tonight, write me a check, whatever, and I'll collect it all, and I'll give it to this, this couple, this anonymous couple tomorrow. So the next morning, the leader is getting the money together and adding it up, going through the checks. And and the leader comes across one check that is substantially larger than all the rest. And that check was written by the anonymous couple. The couple that they were raising the money for. 
They had no idea that they had written a check to alleviate their own burden. They just wanted to be the church for someone else. Who does that? King Jesus, people. You know, some of you have heard Ray um, tell of uh, the early years of this church. When people in this church sold their homes and downsized their house and gave the difference to this church so that we could grow. Who does that? You know, have you heard the economy's not doing real good? You heard that? I don't know about you, but it seems like I'm paying a lot for gas. And I looked at my uh, retirement portfolio this last week because I'm getting kind of old, you know. And I have lost a lot of money. And, and people are kind of fussy and angry and, and throwing little tantrums about this and, you know, about the president and the economy. And I mean, yeah, I mean, it's frustrating. But not so for the people of God. There is to be a calm about King Jesus' people because they know they have a king and they know who they are to ask for their daily bread. So there's a sense of trust because he supplies everything. You don't trust in your portfolio. You don't trust in the White House. You trust in the king. And third... There's a gospel riot. So Paul and Silas uh, are accused of uh, turning the world upside down. You know, sometimes people who oppose the gospel in the Bible, they will say something that they intend to be like really damaging and like shocking and like, look at that. But then they don't realize what a huge compliment it is how incredibly encouraging it is. They're turning the world upside down. That's exactly what the gospel does. That's what it's been doing throughout history. So we don't get all of Paul's message. We just get a summary. It says he reasoned with them from the Scriptures that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. So Paul's message is that Jesus is the Christ. He had to die. And he had to rise. And elsewhere in Romans 4, we read that Paul says that he died so that we might have forgiveness of sins and he was raised for our justification so that we could be fully reconciled, made righteous, and so that we could experience an overwhelming welcome from the Father. Now, again, what is a riot? A riot is meant to break the bonds of some kind of form of slavery by forceful means to set people free. And there is no riot like the gospel. Because the gospel is not simply how you become a Christian. It's how you live as a Christian. It is the liberating power for all of life. The riot of grace marches right against your efforts to cleanse yourself and to justify yourself. We crave approval 
And our guilt and our sense of worthlessness puts us into a slavery of self-justification. And whenever we, we sense our inadequacy, which is more often than you realize, we will put up our careers, our children, our success, our abilities, our talents, anything as a functional God looking for justification, just looking for a sense that we are actually okay as a person. Arthur Miller was a famous playwright. He, uh, he won the Pulitzer Prize. He made a lot of money, and he was married to Marilyn Monroe. And at the height of his success, he was honest enough to say these words. I feel like I've carried around this sense of judgment. <clears throat> I could not escape it. I still feel like I need to prove myself to others. Just to have somebody tell me that I'm okay that I'm acceptable, that I was approved up. You know, during the final days of uh, my sabbatical, I was doing some reading. <clears throat> so on my sabbatical, so for eight weeks, right, I'm not working. I'm not performing. I'm not producing. No one's expecting me to produce anything church work-wise. So it took eight weeks for God to do something in my life. For him to show me that I'm overly dependent on producing and performing in my work. That there's addiction levels in my life, in my work, in order to feel like I'm okay. To feel like I'm significant. Because all that was taken away for eight weeks. And... Um, there was a sense in which I just kind of felt disgusted with myself. You ever feel disgusted with yourself? Because you're just so tired of feeling so insecure. Or, 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 or you hear yourself boasting all the time. Trying, trying to prove so much. But what blew me away in what I was reading was the compassion of Jesus towards me. I cannot believe that he didn't turn me away. I can't believe he didn't say to me, come on, Jones, are we doing this again? I am so tired of you. I put up with you constantly. You know, we kind of approach our lives and our guilt, our shame, and our efforts to be okay. We kind of approach that like we got to have a crowbar, you know? And so we're trying to leverage everything in life just to feel better about who we are, try to cover that sense of guilt and that smallness that we feel. And, and let's just be honest, sometimes it's, it's tiring. It's like you need a sabbatical. Would you like to put down that crowbar? Let me ask you this. Have you ever been melted by the gospel? Do you know that Jesus is drawn to you even when you are most sure he wouldn't want to be? It's not just that you're fall it's not just that he's not repelled by you and your fallenness, but that he finds your need your emptiness, 
your insecurity, your feelings of, of desperation to prove yourself. He finds all of that irresistible. He is drawn to you in compassion. And he, and he doesn't... He doesn't, uh, he doesn't drag his feet. He doesn't moan. He's, like, he's not going, oh, gosh, i got to do this again. i got to love Jones one more time. He didn't do that. He's not like a teenager on a Monday morning dragging themselves out of bed to go to school. He's like a teenager on Christmas morning springing out of bed to move towards you in compassion. That's the heart of your Savior. You know, I, I saw this bumper sticker uh, not long ago, and it said this. It says, God loves you, but don't let it go to your head. No, no, let it go to your head. Let it go to your heart. Let it melt you. Let it help you to see yourself in all of your mess the way he sees you. Because you know what? It can bring a riot of transformation, and it just might turn your world upside down. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we gathered here today to hear from you, to read your word, to worship. Father, we need each other. We need your word. We need to hear from our Father. Would you refresh us to the depths of our being? so that we are marked by joy and confidence in your love to walk humbly before you as your people, the people who belong to King Jesus. Amen.